It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, sex work, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jim knew the stakes from the moment Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink had called. They had put their faith in him, given him an opportunity to be more than just a two-bit pimp. And now he had to show them that they hadn't made a mistake. He thought the local politicians had liked him because he was tactful and quick-thinking, the kind of guy who could make sure his people voted the right way. But now, Jim saw things for what they were. More than anything, the aldermen's respected him for this. His willingness to get his hands dirty. To do what needed to be done. That was what made Big Jim different. Jim had been trusted to collect protection fees from the city's illegal brothels. The price of protection had gone up, and some people weren't happy about it. Particularly Georgie, the meanest madam in town. Jim didn't feel guilty about beating her. Perhaps the brass knuckles were a bit much, but he had to send a message to every barmaid and madam around. Big Jim Colosimo had arrived, and he had no intention of leaving. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. This is our first episode on Jim Colosimo, one of America's first modern kingpins. This week, we'll be exploring his rise from indigent immigrant to crime lord of Chicago's red light district. Next week, we'll look at his fall from grace, arrest, and the lasting legacy of his empire. You can listen to all of Parcast shows wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five-star review. Now, let's dive into the life of Chicago's first notorious vice lord, Big Jim Colosimo. Jim Colosimo was a self-made man. He had come from nothing and yet had risen to become Chicago's most feared and respected crime lord. Everybody knew Diamond Jim, and not just for his jewelry and that flashy three-piece suit he always wore. For every moment Jim had spent as a beggar, peddling newspapers on the street corner, he intended to more than make up for it, now that he had money in his pocket. Jim Colosimo wasn't a pimp. He may have begun his criminal career selling sex on the Chicago streets, 
but he had worked long and hard to become something much more than that. By 1914, Jim had just turned 36. He already controlled, be it directly or indirectly, more than 100 businesses in Chicago's first ward, the Red Light District. He owned gambling joints and opium parlors, billiards halls, and saloons. Some even whispered that he sold Italian national lottery tickets and ran an underground wine business. Jim was in the business of sin, and business was booming. Estimates at the time had him clearing well over half a million a year, which in today's dollars would equate to roughly 12 and a half million. Jim rarely traveled anywhere if not by uniformed chauffeur. His elegant jewelry had led many to start calling him Diamond Jim, a name he more than willingly accepted. He had a reputation now, and it was one he looked forward to living up to. Years spent living in luxury had led Jim to develop an affinity for the fine arts. One art in particular stood out as his favorite, the opera. He came to every show, sometimes buying up as many as 30 seats. He always brought an entourage. Sometimes it was just a few of his men and their wives. Other nights, it was the men and their girlfriends. After every show, Jim was welcomed backstage. Every member of the Chicago Opera Company recognized him. He invited the singers and the maestro over to his restaurant, Colosimo's Cafe. He knew they would come. They always did. After the show, Jim returned to the restaurant and poured himself a drink. Since its opening in 1910, Colosimo's Cafe had quickly become one of Chicago's hottest night spots. Politicians, celebrities, and wise guys alike all gathered there each night to enjoy the old-school Italian cooking and lively entertainment. But it was the after-dinner activities that truly endeared Colosimo's Cafe to the Chicago elites. Gambling joints were a dime a dozen, but where else but Colosimo's could an intrepid diner go upstairs and gamble until the wee hours of the morning with hardened criminals, state senators, and foreign actresses alike? One night at Colosimo's Cafe sometimes bagged Jim more than a week's worth of his brothel's receipts, and Jim knew he was really selling the same thing at either venue. Not just food or sex, he was selling something far more important, an experience. Jim saw little distinction between the customers at his brothels and those who pulled at cigars and gambled away thousands at his restaurant. As far as he was concerned, the only real difference between the two was that you never had to pretend you cared whether the brothel patrons had enjoyed themselves. And for Jim, pretending to care was the worst part. He had lived his life without conscience, never stopping to consider who he was hurting along his way. This way of living had done him well. It had been the factor that allowed him to grow from nothing into the titan he had become. The story of Jim Colosimo begins in Colosimi, a small mountainous town in southern Italy, with the birth of a child by the name of Vincenzo. By the time Vincenzo Colosimo was born on February 16, 1878, the economy in southern Italy had taken a turn for the worse. With jobs few and far between, men of working age were already starting to ship off to the United States in hopes of finding their fortune. 
But leaving Colosimi was hardly an option for Vincenzo's father, Luigi, who had grown up in the tiny mountain town. Luigi's own father remained the area's most wealthy landowner. He would raise his family here, no matter how difficult it may be. Unfortunately, those plans were dashed by the tragic passing of Luigi's wife, Vincenzo's mother, Giuseppina. Luigi was now a widower with four children to take care of. And with his own job prospects dim at best amid the stalling economy, he made a decision that would change the course of history. In 1891, Luigi sent his youngest son, Vincenzo, off to America. He was only 12 years old, with a bright future ahead of him. Luigi hoped the boy would become wealthy enough to support the rest of the Colosimo clan. Three long weeks after departing from Naples, Vincenzo and his 21-year-old half-brother, Antonio, arrived by steamship into New York Harbor. The pair hardly had any time to enjoy the New York skyline before they were put on a train to Chicago, where Luigi had made arrangements to have the boys' room in the city's ever-growing Italian neighborhood. Antonio was ready to go home before the pair had even arrived. He'd been tasked with leading the youngster across the Atlantic, but he had no interest in staying in America. As soon as he ensured that Vincenzo had a roof over his head, Antonio bid his younger brother goodbye and good luck. Vincenzo was all alone now. He had no bed, only a slice of floor just barely big enough to fit his growing body. But that didn't matter to Vincenzo. He had crossed the world to reach Chicago's bustling cobblestone streets. And though he didn't yet speak English, he wouldn't let that stop him from rising. This was the land of opportunity. But first things first. If Vincenzo was going to become the rich American he crossed the ocean to be, he needed a proper American name. Vincenzo Colosimo was no more. Jim Colosimo had arrived. Up next, we'll take a look at how Big Jim first broke into crime and how he rose from indigent immigrant to feared vice lord. Now back to the story. From all the talk he'd heard on his long trip across the Atlantic, Jim Colosimo had half expected the streets of Chicago to be paved with gold. But as he grew up through the 1890s, he soon found the truth to be far less glamorous. The small Italian neighborhood where Jim found himself living was about as far from the American dream as possible. The people were poor, the apartments overcrowded, and the streets stank from uncollected garbage and broken sewage pipes. In conditions like this, petty crime ruled the day. The neighborhood's widespread squalor attracted ruffians of all kinds, including pickpockets, extortionists, sex workers, and pimps. It was in these streets that Jim Colosimo made his first foray into crime. At only 14, he joined up with a six-member band of ruffianos for some pickpocketing and minor extortion of local business owners. But Jim quickly grew weary of this racket. He knew that his family back home was relying on him to send whatever money he could muster. But there was something about extorting his fellow Italians that Jim simply couldn't stomach. So he went clean. And like many other illiterate, penniless children, he rose before 3 a.m. each morning to pick up the first editions of the morning paper. 
From there, Jim would rush to one of the city's more well-trafficked areas in hopes of securing a corner to hawk his papers. The battles between the newsboys for prime real estate could be vicious, and more than a few times it took thrown punches and screamed obscenities to settle things. For this, Jim was well-suited. Though he still had little understanding of English, he had no difficulty communicating with his fists. Violence was a universal language, and Jim was fluent, even as a boy. He was big for his age, and he noticed how the other children shrunk away when he challenged them. It was in this bloody rat race for corner real estate that Jim Colosimo got his first taste of power. The corners of Chicago's red light district were where Jim got his first real education. He learned the English language, the laws of the street, but most importantly, he learned all about the business of vice. The close of the 19th century was a time of tremendous growth for Chicago. The population was ballooning, the financial sector thriving, and those lucky enough to profit off this sudden influx of business needed somewhere to spend their money. And women from all over the world were there to provide just that. Sex workers quickly became the city's biggest import. By 1900, Chicago served as home to at least 10,000 sex workers. Knowing that it would be nearly impossible to stop this trade altogether, city officials did their best to keep it confined to designated vice districts around the city. The implicit understanding was that the prostitution laws of Illinois and Chicago didn't matter on these chosen streets. As the years wore on, and reformers pushed to shut down these crime havens, the vice districts along Chicago's North Bank were closed. The first ward, by virtue of being the only vice district remaining, became the city's preeminent red light district. To some, it looked like the city had abandoned this district as a lost cause. But to Jim Colosimo, the city's decision to turn a blind eye to the first ward represented something else entirely opportunity. As the day wore on and Jim's paper sales slowed, he watched as the first ward's sex workers solicited business from well-to-do socialites and downtrodden immigrants alike. They operated from doorways and sidewalks, undisturbed by the police who wandered by. By now, it was clear that the state attorney had no interest in putting a stop to the red light district sex trade and the Chicago police certainly didn't seem to have any intention of breaking it up themselves. Jim had stopped counting the number of officers he'd seen disappear into the alleys with the working girls. Maybe that was why, as the 19th century drew to a close and Jim approached his 18th birthday, he decided to try his luck at a new trade. Fresh-faced and just barely entering into adulthood, Jim Colosimo became a pimp. He started small enlisting the services of a few working girls he knew from the neighborhood. The arrangement was simple. Jim offered the protection of a large, imposing figure, and in return, the women provided him with a cut of their cash. Jim found the girls to be incredibly hard workers, and few Johns dared to cross Jim, who was now close to six feet tall and well over 200 pounds. His bad temper and propensity for violence had already become legend in the streets of the First Ward. For Jim, things were perfect. Until suddenly, they were anything but. 
A brush with the police left Jim shaken. He knew that reformers were pushing the police to crack down on sex workers across the First Ward. The local brothels were safe, as it was well known they paid the local politicians for protection, but any activity out on the streets remained firmly in the police crosshairs. Most men arrested for pimping were given a mere slap on the wrist, perhaps a fine and a warning. But Jim had heard rumors of one or two pimps who had been given lengthy prison sentences as a result of the city's cleanup efforts. Jim still had his father and siblings to send money to back in Colosomy. He couldn't risk getting locked up. And so, almost as fast as he had entered into the business of pimping, Jim Colosimo retired. But he still needed to make a living. For help with that, he turned to the local padrone, one of the area's more affluent and powerful Italian immigrants. The padrone found Jim a job as a white wing, a street sweeper tasked with clearing the streets of horse manure and other scattered garbage. The work was anything but glamorous, but Jim wore his title as a white wing proudly. It wasn't long before Jim became a leader within the group. His personality drew people to him, and soon he was organizing his fellow Italian white wings into a social and athletic club. In 1899, Jim came to realize the value of this simple extracurricular. A local politician by the name of Bathhouse John Coughlin had heard of an Italian immigrant-led voting coalition mobilizing in the First Ward and sought out the man rumored to be running it. It turned out that, on election day, the White Wing Club's members had all voted for Jim's preferred candidates. He hadn't intended to become any sort of campaigner. He had simply let his fellow White Wings know who he planned on voting for and why. They'd followed his lead without even being asked. Jim had unwittingly formed a powerful political coalition, and in doing so, he'd stumbled onto a path toward the life he had dreamed of since first boarding his ship to America. Bathhouse John saw to it that Jim was promoted within the White Wings to a position with better pay and more responsibility. And in exchange, Jim pledged the votes of his Italian social club in the future. Having seen the power of his limited politicking, Jim Colosimo now wondered how he might grow his voting block, and with it, his influence. The only question was how. Jim thought back to his years spent hawking papers on the corners of the red light district. He remembered all of those sex workers soliciting business from alleyways and open doors. Estimates say that by 1900, just as Jim was rising through the ranks of the White Wings, Chicago was home to upwards of 10,000 sex workers. If Jim was able to secure the votes of even half of those, who knew what rewards Bathhouse John would have for him? Jim certainly couldn't return to the pimp trade. He had already tried and failed at that racket and had no interest in returning to the street corner. No, Jim had something else in mind. Whether by chance or calculation, in 1902, Jim met Victoria Moresco, an unmarried Italian immigrant running a brothel along the First Ward's western edge. Victoria found Jim charming. But more than anything, she liked the practical things he had to offer. He was a fellow Italian, a must if she were to satisfy the wishes of her own Italian immigrant parents. 
His burgeoning political career offered obvious advantages for Victoria's business. His new connections in the First Ward made him virtually immune to arrest, and his responsible demeanor convinced Victoria that he might make a perfect partner in running her business and in marriage. The couple was married at Chicago City Hall on July 2, 1902. Jim was 23 and Victoria only 20. Jim didn't know if he loved Victoria, but he certainly respected her business acumen. He took quickly to the business, learning the ins and outs of running a brothel. The house got 60% of each girl's earnings, and the girls had to pay for their own clothing and medical services. But for the women, it was still safer than the alternative. Even with a pimp, protection from an over-aggressive John couldn't be guaranteed. The brothels at least represented security. The women didn't have to stand out in the brutal Chicago cold or risk running into an overachieving cop looking to make an example by arresting them. Almost as soon as he had the basics down, Jim sought to expand. He and Victoria purchased another brothel, just next door to their Armour Avenue location. Jim honored his bride by naming the new resort the Victoria. The Victoria was to be a more upscale resort than their first establishment. It would feature all of Jim's best women, the prettiest and youngest, all for a markup of $2 per session instead of one. Victoria took over the operations of her namesake, leaving Jim to assume control of her original brothel. Between the women, pimps, and frequent customers at the two locations, Jim now controlled nearly a hundred new voters, and he had no intention of stopping there. Jim and Victoria began opening brothels all over the First Ward. They moved carefully, methodically, expanding their empire to include cheap shops and more upscale resorts alike. The Colosimo Moresco brothels developed a sound reputation around the red light district. They were clean, sanitary, and their patrons almost never found that their drinks had been drugged. With every new brothel, Jim added votes to a newly established trade union he controlled. Jim's sphere of political influence now included the White Wings, his working girls, and even most of the Italians who lived in the tenements around his apartment. Jim rarely had to resort to violence to secure votes. Instead, he mobilized his coalition with typical campaigning and community organizing. As he'd found out with the White Wings, he had a natural talent for persuasion. Bathhouse John and his fellow First Ward politician, Michael Hinkydink Kenna, took note of Jim's voting coalition. The growing numbers convinced them to give Jim his biggest promotion yet, precinct captain. Precinct captains served as the backbone of Chicago's political institutions. They registered voters in their precinct and ensured that every one of them voted the right way come election day. These captains engaged in all types of voter fraud, including filling in stacks of blank ballots and using violence to intimidate anyone who considered voting against their chosen candidates. This kind of dirty politics was hardly uncommon in Chicago. For decades, the city's political institutions had been run not on public sentiment, but instead on the two Fs, friendship and favors. Those in power did all they could to keep it that way. They bribed judges and clerks indiscriminately and arranged for the beatings and kidnappings of their opponents. In Chicago, politics was not just dirty business, but dangerous business. 
To say Jim made a good fit for his new position would be an understatement. He reveled in the power it afforded him. And Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink liked Jim. They saw in him a crafty influencer, capable of securing their place in the Chicago political hierarchy for years to come. But that wasn't all they saw in him. By 1905, Jim was 27. He had always been tall, but now he had grown thick and muscular. And the two lawmakers saw an opportunity to put those muscles to work. Hinky Dink and Bathhouse John were looking to make a change. The man they had been employing to collect protection money from the first ward's body houses, gambling joints, and saloons was doing all right. But they thought Big Jim could help them bring in even more money. They had recently raised the price of their weekly protection fees for illegal business dealings, and some of the locals were less than pleased about it. No one was more outspoken about their objections than Georgie Spencer, the madam at a South Dearborn Street brothel, well-known around the first ward as physically imposing and ill-tempered. Rumor had it that when the police had recently raided Georgie's brothel, it had taken six uniformed officers just to get her into the police cab. Jim knew what he was getting into when he arrived. He had heard enough about Georgie to know she wouldn't hand over the money easily. Georgie barely blinked at Jim's arrival. She knew the politicians might send some thug to convince her to pay up. Though she hadn't seen this thug in particular before, she offered no hesitation in her answer. You can tell your bosses I'm not paying no more in protection. Jim tried to hide his displeasure. This wasn't the first time he'd been so openly challenged by a woman. His wife Victoria could be ferocious herself. But this was different. He had formed a path to prosperity by aligning with the two politicians. He couldn't return to them empty-handed. The brass knuckles were supposed to be a backup plan, only to be used if things really got out of control. But now, as he slipped them onto his hand and raised his fist, Jim realized that a part of him had wanted this from the moment he was hired. Jim cocked Georgie across the jaw, knocking her flat onto her back. As she lay at his feet, moaning in agony, Jim carefully stepped over her to snatch her purse. He removed the $300 she owed and walked out the door. Big Jim walked out of Georgie's brothel with something far more valuable than the $300. He now had Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink's complete and total confidence, and with it, he had his ticket to becoming the crime lord of the First Ward. When we return, we'll follow Jim's meteoric rise within the First Ward's criminal world. Now, back to the story. As the spring of 1909 drew to a close, Jim Colosimo couldn't help but to consider himself a very lucky man. He had taken well to his new role as protection collector. Each month, he collected $300 from each of the district's brothels. From the gambling joints, he drew up to $25 a day. And from the saloons, he drew $50 each week. Altogether, that would be the equivalent of over $1,300 a week in today's dollars. The money was then divided between Jim, Bathhouse John, Hinky Dink Kenna, and the district police captain. 
Jim put his share toward his ever-expanding business interests. Just months earlier, former First Ward business partners Roy Jones and George Little had split up after a serious disagreement over profits. Their empire had included saloons, gambling joints, and brothels all across the First Ward. With the disillusion of this partnership, there came a void that Jim was happy to fill. Bathhouse John and Hinky Dink had already given Jim the authority to determine who did and didn't receive saloon licenses in the first ward. So when Jones and Little started selling off their businesses, Jim let it be known on the streets that any potential buyer just might have some difficulty securing the appropriate permits. This gambit worked to perfection. The bid started drying up and Jim purchased the remainder of Jones's and Little's businesses at a hefty discount. He renovated a number of billiards halls, gambling houses, brothels, and saloons all over the district. By the end of the spring of 1909, you could hardly walk down any street in the first ward without passing at least one of Jim's businesses. Jim had amassed an empire in part because he was what so many king and queen pins after him would aspire to be not just a feared and respected figure in the underworld, but also a gifted politician, pulling the city's strings as well as any career statesman. In July of that same year, Jim and Victoria finally moved out of their tiny apartment in the First Ward. For a $10,000 mortgage, roughly the equivalent of $265,000 today, the couple purchased a house just two miles south of the First Ward. But by the end of 1909, Jim found himself tangled up in a major problem. The letters were simple. They first arrived in late 1909, containing only a small phrase written in Italian, Mano Nera, the Black Hand. Jim knew full well what they were capable of. The Black Hand preyed on Italian business owners. They demanded payoffs and those who refused to pay were dealt with swiftly and with indiscriminate violence. Beatings were common. Jim had even seen businesses bombed. Owners murdered right in their own shops. He knew better than anyone how dangerous they were. But more than anything, he knew that he was not going to be extorted. Not now. Not after all he had built. And so, in his hour of need, Jim did what so many Italians had been raised to do. He turned to his family for help. At 27, John Torrio was only four years younger than Jim, but he somehow looked even younger than that. He arrived by train after an urgent letter from his cousin, Victoria, asking that he come to Chicago and help her husband take care of a problem. Back in New York, Torrio had a reputation as an industrious street gangster with a propensity for violence. Jim had taken a liking to Torrio during his occasional visits to Chicago. He now invited him to the Windy City, promising to put him to work. Sensing opportunity, Torrio jumped at the offer. He soon found himself running the Saratoga, one of Jim's countless First Ward brothels. The implicit message of Torrio's arrival was clear. Torrio was more than added muscle. He was known as a killer, and his placement at Jim's right hand made the prospect of coming after Colosimo all the more dangerous. 
On the night of November 22, 1911, police responded to a report of a shooting in a long, dark underpass beneath the Rock Island Railroad tracks. At the scene, they found two men shot dead. They would later be identified as Pasquale D'Amico and Francisco Dinello, local hoodlums with rumored ties to Black Hand extortion schemes. Police found a third man, Stefano Dinello, nearly a block up the road. Despite being shot in the head, he had managed to drag himself a good distance before passing out. When Danello came to, he refused to explain what had happened. Instead, he told the police that he wanted one thing and one thing only, Jim Colosimo. Jim wasn't a suspect. Hundreds of people had seen him entertaining patrons at his restaurant at the time of the shooting. But the police nonetheless obliged Danello's request and brought Jim to his bedside. When Big Jim showed up, Danello refused to talk with him. He only stared up at him, a simmering rage in his eyes. It didn't matter much to Jim if the poor bastard spoke or not. Jim didn't have much to say to him either. Torrio had already delivered all the message he needed. If the Black Hand hoped to survive in the First Ward, it would do well to leave Jim Colosimo alone. By 1912, Jim had amassed the largest and most powerful organization of hoodlums, gangsters, and racketeers that the First Ward had ever seen. Jim's gang was diverse. The Italians, the Irish, the Jewish, and the Greeks all had a place within the operation. The scope of Jim's crime syndicate was so vast that years later, John Torrio and a man by the name of Al Capone would use it as the foundation of their infamous Chicago outfit. Jim had reached the mountaintop of the Chicago underworld. Many in the Italian community assumed that he was the head of the mafia in Chicago. Of course, the fact that Jim had been born on mainland Italy and not Sicily automatically excluded him from membership in the mafia. Besides, the mob's presence in Chicago was still little more than a rumor. But Jim Colosimo didn't need the mafia. He was already a crime king in his own right. And each year, when thousands of young Italian immigrants arrived in Chicago, it was now Jim who served as the padrone for so many of them. Jim's father, Luigi, had by now come to live permanently with Jim and Victoria. He had always urged his son to take care of his fellow Italian countrymen. Jim obliged by serving as a private employment agency, finding jobs for the hardy and willing, just as the padrone had done for him as a young man. When new arrivals came without a place to live, Jim saw to it that they found low-cost living in the first ward. Occasionally, he even saw to it that grocery stores provided food to new immigrants on credit. Jim's actions were not exactly out of charity. The immigrants he found work for would pay him a finder's fee of anywhere from $1 to $15. Today, that would mean anywhere from $27 to well over $400. Many of the workers went on making weekly or monthly payments to Jim even years after they started their jobs, and those allowed to purchase their groceries on credit? They paid a higher cost for their next orders, with the markup going straight to Jim. In his mid-30s, Jim was already what he had aspired to be when he arrived in the United States some 20 years earlier, a kingpin, feared and respected. He had more money than he ever dreamed of making. But now, 
at the height of his power, Jim wanted something more, legitimacy. Opening in 1912, Jim's new Italian restaurant, Colosimo's Cafe, quickly became his pride and joy, not to mention by far the most successful of his business endeavors. As Colosimo's Cafe grew in renown, Jim became more interested in celebrity and less interested in the day-to-day operations of his criminal empire. Jim had never much cared about his appearance, but now he started wearing two- or three-piece white suits in the summers and tasteful checkered suits in the winter, not to mention the jewelry, rings, watches, belt buckles, all adorned with eye-popping diamonds. He hired a tutor to improve his English and started making a point of spending more time on the restaurant premises. Jim loved to greet his customers at the door, welcoming them with his thick Italian accent and disarming smile. Not everyone was thrilled with Jim's growing interest in the world of fine dining. John Torrio, Jim's most trusted lieutenant, took on more responsibility with each day that Jim spent at the restaurant. Torrio had been tasked with keeping Jim's men in line and making sure his various vice operations ran smoothly. He cautioned Jim not to divert his attention away from the operations that had driven his rise. Jim dismissed Torrio's worries. He had come this far, and he had no intention of slipping from his place at the top. Ignoring Torrio's frustrations would prove a deadly mistake. Jim had no idea of the enemies outside his organization who were plotting his downfall, nor of the enemy within his own family whose betrayal would ensure it. While he hushed his concerns and quietly ran Jim's empire, John Torrio was already hatching a plot that would not only cost Jim his life, but would forever change the course of American organized crime. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore the undoing of Jim Colosimo's crime empire, his betrayal of his own second-in-command, and his murder in 1920. You can find Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show, and if you enjoy the show... The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.